this is an endemic situation we are not going to be in a time where there's not going to be a covid case welcome to agenda dialogues top level discussions on the world's biggest issues hosted by world economic forum president burger brenda this week health really leaders need to come together around and mandate the international system with its many arms to get on with doing something better Former New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark has been looking at the lessons the world has to learn from the COVID pandemic as co-chair of the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. She joins other experts from government and business around the world to discuss how we can do better next time. These infections pathogens can be on the next plane and there's no time to waste. Find us at wef.ch slash podcasts and on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. From the World Economic Forum, this is the Agenda Dialogues. Hello and welcome from the World Economic Forum in Geneva, Switzerland. My name is Adrian Monk. Welcome to this discussion from leading figures on healthy populations and healthy economies. We are joined today by Matt Hancock, the UK Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. From New Zealand by Helen Clark, their former Prime Minister who now co-chairs the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response from the US by their former US Trade Secretary, Michael Froman, who is now President of Strategic Growth and Vice Chairman of MasterCard. From India by Shabana Kamenani, who leads Apollo Hospitals Enterprises, a company on the front line of India's COVID crisis. And from London Business School by Professor Linda Grattan, who will give us the picture on burnout and what leaders can do to help caregivers and workers get safely through the remainder of this pandemic. You'll be hearing their insights over the course of the next hour. But first, to the chair of today's meeting, the president of the World Economic Forum, Berger Brenda. Berger. Thank you, Adrian, and thank you to all our distinguished uh, guests. We have had this series since uh, the pandemic started um, last year. Around this time, it was uh, peaking. And I guess if we had said a year ago that we were going to see vaccines developed in less than a year, uh, there would be uh, big question marks. And uh, now we are here. Uh, the rollout of the vaccines are also happening. And we know that without a partnership between governments and private sectors, the pharmaceuticals, we would not have been in this uh, situation. It is no really speeding up uh, the rollout of the vaccines that are going to really address both the health crisis and the economic crisis. So we have a great panel to address this. Our first speaker or contributor is Matt Hancock. Good to see you, Matt, Secretary of State uh, for Health in the UK. And we're seeing now the rollout of vaccines are having huge impact in the UK. You're even starting to discuss now reopening uh, the country. Could you share with us how incredibly important uh, the vaccination program has been for the UK? How you see this also uh, developing? What we can learn from the UK here? Because you have had very busy year. Over to you in London. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Boyd. It's absolutely true. We've had a, we've had a busy year but I think everybody has had the same. First, I would want to pay tribute to the World Economic Forum because, of course, it was in uh, the year 2000 that uh, Gavi, the Global Vaccines Alliance, was launched uh, at the World Economic Forum. And it's in, 
it's an incredibly important part of the infrastructure, the international infrastructure that we have now. As you say, the rollout in the UK has been strong. We've based our approach as much as is possible on the science. You'll have seen that uh, yesterday we published more pharmacovigilance into the vaccines that we use and made an adjustment to the, the medical recommendations. And this is part of a successful vaccine rollout. Uh, whatever the vaccine is, to keep looking even for extremely uh, rare side effects and then make sure that you roll out in the safest way possible. Good news is that the uptake in the UK is incredibly strong. Over 95% uptake in those aged 70 and over, and over 90% in every group aged over 50. And we're really proud of that fact. You asked about the lessons that we've learned. And the first was to act early and invest early. We could see from January last year that a vaccine was going to be the only long-term way out of this, even though no coronavirus vaccine had ever successfully been developed. And so we asked the question, where do we want to be in a year's time and work backwards from there? Uh, the second thing is that the approach we took in the UK, which is not typical often in public sector organizations, is that we backed at risk the domestic options. We had two lead domestic options, one of which has come off, uh, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, we also backed others that um, that didn't. We, we built the manufacturing capacity at risk before we knew that the regulator would uh, successfully assess these, these vaccines as safe and effective. And we took a global approach rather than a domestic one in that whilst, of course, we backed our own uh, homegrown science, which itself actually was an international collaboration, of course, we also bought early and uh, signed contracts for uh, vaccines that were developed overseas. So this open approach is incredibly, incredibly important to making vaccines work. And most va vaccine supply chains are international. And this is why you know, making sure that we have this international join up and try to remove barriers to that and certainly not put new ones in place uh, is incredibly important. The third thing is the point that you made, Boyce, in your opening, which is this is a collaboration between what I call the holy trinity between government, academia and private enterprise. You need all three. You need the science, the top end science. You need the finance of government and also the organizing principles. It helps enormously here that we have a universal healthcare system where everybody who's resident in the UK, almost everybody has an NHS number. And therefore, we had a very simple way to structure and organize our, our rollout and a very trusted brand under which to do it, the NHS. Um, and, uh, and then you must have the private enterprise because without that, we wouldn't have been able to get to scale. And it's the, it's the combination of the three that, that really matters. Um, and then the final thing I'd say is that we work very, very hard to try to make sure that the principles we attach to this is that it's a national mission. We have one cohesive team with a single really clear mission, which is to vaccinate the UK population as fast as safely possible and to vaccinate the world. That is our goal. And I'm incredibly pleased that as of today, uh, COVAX, thanks to the work of so many people, has now started rolling out vaccines in 100 countries and territories. And that is a big moment in the world's response because everybody 
knows now that nobody's safe till everybody's is, is safe. It's a good staging post on the way to ensuring that the vaccine is available throughout the world. Where do you see the international cooperation going uh, moving forward when it comes to inoculation and also dealing with pandemics? Because I think we can not uh, say that we were uh, really ready for this pandemic. And we will come back to this with Helen Clark later on. But uh, first you, Matt. Well, I think that my reflection would be that in 2020, under the pressure of the crisis, there was too much of the response was individual nation states. And in 2021, we need to bind that together into a cohesive global response. And we pledge to play our part in that. It's very important that we all work together to drive up vaccine supply, that we work across borders to do that. And that on things like global travel, that we try to coordinate to have rules in place that allow for safe global travel. And um, I think that the work that uh, Helen Clark and her co-chairs and the team are doing is incredibly important in terms of strengthening the global institutions, primarily the World Health Organization, which has played a vital role, but also needs strengthening, learning the lessons from the response. So the uh, there, there is much more to do to strengthen the international system, to put in place the glue that, uh, that can bind us uh, together. As a health secretary, I understand and I feel the domestic responsibility and duty to ensure that the citizens who I represent and serve uh, can have their vaccine and be made safe. It isn't an either or. You've got to do that at the same time as working globally to make sure that everybody can get their vaccines. So uh, last question. Uh, I know this has been a year uh, under hu huge uh, pressure uh, for you also. Uh, personally, we do uh, see light in the end of the tunnel. But I guess there are still things that keep you up at night, new strains. Uh, when do you think we uh, will see the end of this? When will we be uh, out of the woods? Will this become an endemic thing that we have to be vaccinated uh, against uh, every year? Are you ready to share any uh, of this or is it too speculative uh, for a health secretary at this stage? My view is uh, sadly that eradication is not possible, at least in the short or medium term. And therefore, we have to manage this disease like we manage other transmissible diseases like flu. That is how we're going to have to manage this disease, at uh, least in the, uh, the short and the medium term. And the vaccines can help us to do that. They will be our primary tool, but they won't be our only tool. And in the UK, we deal with this every season. I think the population, um, certainly in the UK, gets that. You know, they understand that we have to learn to live with it, but live with it in a way that, that can keep people safe. Thank you so much, uh, Matt Hancock, uh, Secretary of State uh, for Health, United Kingdom. Now moving over uh, to Helen Clark. Uh, it's a little bit past four o'clock uh, in the morning in New Zealand. It shows um, how dedicated Helen is, a prime minister for a decade uh, in New Zealand, also headed uh, UNDP. And now given uh, this extremely important uh, job uh, to uh, head uh, co-chair the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. So my first question uh, to you, Helen, will be related to the year that has passed. What uh, can we learn and how, how can the world be better prepared uh, next time? Well, thanks for the opportunity to be part of the, the panel. 
the panel spent uh, the last few months uh, preparing uh, a lot of uh, evidence and analysis about what went wrong. And in our interim report in January, we set out a number of uh, observations. So what we say in the final report won't be a, a great mystery to anyone. We did identify uh, failures and delays at every stage of the response to the outbreak and then what became the, the pandemic. Unfortunately, despite years of, of warning of pandemic risk, many countries just weren't adequately prepared for an event of, of this kind. We also found that the existing uh, detection and alert systems were rather uh, too slow and didn't generate the urgent uh, response required. We're also uh, concerned about the failure to have applied a precautionary principle at the earliest uh, indicative evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. And then we particularly focused on the month of February after the Public Health Emergency of International Concern Declaration, when it seemed a lot of the world uh, sat and waited and, and didn't really use that time uh, to put in place the, the measures that might have uh, contained uh, the outbreak uh, rather more. And, and the rest is history with the wide-ranging uh, social and economic crises which have uh, followed with the, with the pandemic. So the recommendations that we make will be based on the, the, the learning and the observations of, of what didn't uh, go right. Uh, we will uh, certainly be looking in the direction of a much more rapid and transparent surveillance and alert uh, system. We think that the current system is not really one designed for the digital age, and knowing the World Economic Forum's uh, great interest in the fourth industrial revolution and the digital age, let's just say that the system we need must be based on the most up-to-date tools, artificial intelligence, uh, to be able to detect and transparently report pandemic threats in hours and days and not weeks. We are, after all, in the 21st century, we are not in the age of uh, a medieval plague where disease traveled by foot. These infections pathogens can be on the next plane and there's no time to waste. The second uh, strong point we'll make is that the alert must lead to a rapid response by all countries. Uh, when the world's top global health official, uh, which is the Director General of the WHO, declares such a public health emergency of international concern, Everybody's got to jump. And uh, the most successful responses, I think, have been based on uh, strong leadership uh, from the top uh, in countries, effective whole of government coordination, effective communications with the public, and, of course, societal engagement as, as well. The role of WHO, as the Secretary for Health of the UK has said, is extremely uh, important, but it has a number of limitations in the way it's financed and the way it's governed. So how its authority is enhanced uh, and ensuring that its funding is fit for purpose will be very important. Uh, we think that we need to be thinking about global preparedness and response as a global public good. And that means thinking beyond aid and ODA to how such a global public good is financed. We will make proposals around financing, but we're also liaising closely with others who are working on this, not least the G20 uh, task team, uh, which has been uh, formed. So suffice to say, you know, multilateralism hasn't been so strong in recent years. 
But when we're faced with a, a clear and present danger to every uh, human being, the world has to come together and come together now uh, around a stronger system to support preparedness and response, find the resources for it, encourage the maximum possible cooperation among countries in sharing information and sharing the burden of containing infectious disease. And if we, we can do that, we have a chance of designing something better, hopefully overcoming this pandemic and being in a better state to avert a future one. Thank you so much, Helen, also for sharing this insight in your work that uh, is so incredibly uh, important. Just a, a short question uh, at the end uh, related to what you said about building stronger systems and also being more resilient uh, in the future. This is probably the biggest crisis we have seen uh, since the Second World War and the biggest health crisis we have seen in 100 years. How would such a stronger international system look like? And do you think world leaders have seen that this is so serious now, that even in this fractured, polarized world that we are facing, there will be some agreements? Or will there be other things then uh, on the agenda and then uh, everything is forgotten about the pandemic? Well, now is the time, isn't it, to try and get some agreement around this, because if not now, when? And you're right, uh, Berger, uh, you know, leaders' attention, it, it changes. You know, the reality is that by the end of this year, most of the, uh, the high-income countries will expect to have their populations pretty fully vaccinated, and what a tragedy it would be if we then you know, pull the drawbridge up after us and think, oh, well, life can go on. And I'm very encouraged by what Matt Hancock said about, you know, we now focus on, on the global solidarity because none of us are going to be safe from this until we're all safe. I see that President Biden has also appointed Gail Smith, who's very well known as a coordinator for the U.S. global response, which indicates its full uh, engagement, which, which is very important. So at the panel, we think <laughs> that... The whole issue of pandemic preparedness needs to be lifted above the level of international health regulation focal points in the low levels of bureaucracies of, of health and, and, and nations, liaising through to WHO. We have to lift this to the attention of heads of state and government, not, not only at home where they're preoccupied right now, uh, but also at the global level. Uh, this calls, I think, for convening. And we have convened successfully and multilaterally on health before. The universal health coverage a special session of the General Assembly was very important. So was the one on non-communicable diseases, the regular ones on AIDS. You know, you can look to mobilize political will at the highest level at a time uh, like this and hopefully get uh, the momentum around a set of recommendations which will make a substantial difference. The international architecture, the pre-negotiated systems for tools and supplies, the, the financing, the strengthening of the, the WHO, uh, the beefed up the alert and surveillance system. There's a lot that really leaders need to come together around and mandate the international system with its many arms to get on with doing something better. And that also acts as an incentive at, at home as well to say, you know, actually preparedness wasn't what it should have been. We all need to review uh, what, what has happened 
and determined to have our national systems better as well. And there could well be a role in that for some kind of universal periodic review mechanism. We have that in human rights, by the way. We have a peer review. We probably need some kind of peer review system of national preparedness systems to keep us all on our mark. Great idea, uh, this peer uh, review system also in the health. I saw Matt Hancock, I know you have to leave uh, in a couple of uh, minutes. So, uh, but I also saw you noted a lot during Helen Clark uh, when she uh, was speaking. So uh, any short reaction uh, from you before we uh, move over to uh, Mike Froman? I think that um, I think that Helen and her team have done an absolutely fantastic job so far. And the best words I heard you say, Helen, were is this point about the leader's attention moves on. Um, and it, it's very important. There are many areas of public policy where you effectively have a quiet for periods, sometimes decades, and then intense focus. I think the best analogy is financial stability work. During a financial crisis, there is intense focus. And then the, there can be years in which there is not a significant financial crisis. And there may be small crises around the world in the same way that the parallels are there with, with communicable diseases. Designing institutions that retain that focus during peacetime is incredibly important uh, so that when the crisis hits, uh, we can gear up uh, quickly again. And after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, and indeed after the 1998 financial crisis, the so-called tiger economies at the time, institutions were strengthened and more processes put in place. And those are the sorts of lessons we need to bring into the health space and to make sure that even if there is no pandemic for the next 10 years, or rather no threat of a pandemic, if, there isn't, if there's a period in which there, there by chance is no pathogen that develops uh, that has the potential to be a global pandemic, Nevertheless, in 10 years' time, we're ready. There's this wonderful quote that they use in financial stability uh, world that is, the next big crisis comes the moment that the last person around during the last one retires. We must build institutions now that can be strong, even if the attention at the global leadership level moves inevitably to other great challenges. And that's what we must embed now. Well, thank you so much uh, to Helen and Matt. That was uh, really, really enlightening. I want now to move over the Atlantic to Mike uh, Froman, Vice Chair of uh, MasterCard's Growth Center, but um, even more known for uh, being the leader of USTR during Obama years, a well-known expert on global trade and value chains. And what we have seen also during this uh, health crisis, uh, of course, it turned also into the most dramatic economic crisis when it came to contraction in the global economy last year. But we also saw huge impact for the global value chains. And people are now discussing uh, how much will this change the global value chains? How will this whole trade uh, picture look moving forward? So I'm happy uh, that we have such an expert with us as you, Mike, uh, to, to share some thoughts around this. Over to you. Well, thanks very much for, for having me. And as you said, I think the last year has underscored both the importance and the fragility of global supply chains. Just look at the news over the last month where a single ship in the Suez Canal uh, had a very significant effect on global trade. Uh, and to add to that, 
the rise of nationalism and protectionism over the last several years, which has led more and more countries to think about the nature of their supply chains. From a company perspective, you know, companies look at supply chains really from an operational risk perspective and what should happen to their products if they're not able to get access to inputs or into markets. So, of course, in the vaccine context, we saw you know, some, some reaction, whether it was import restraints or export controls, uh, which also reflect a little bit of the tendency towards nationalism coming into trade and, and affecting supply chains. And my guess is you're going to see some modest and incremental change over time, but the, the importance of global supply chains will remain uh, very much there. You know, where governments are very good at, uh, at, at fighting the last battle. Um, and uh, uh, no doubt coming out of this one, we will say we need domestic production of PPE and domestic production of vials and inputs for vaccines uh, and, and the like. And pandemics may well be with us for decades to come in some form or another. So that's, those are good prudential steps to consider. But we have to look more broadly. And as uh, Matt Hancock said, I think one of the challenges is when you come out of a crisis to ensure that you're putting in place processes for addressing these issues in between uh, moments of, of, of crisis. And so just as we did the Financial Stability Board after the global financial crisis, we need to make sure, for example, we're bringing countries together around the whole issue of uh, digitization and data and technology as, as Helen was underscoring, so that we're bringing regulators and experts together, trying to avoid walls being put up, uh, national internets, bifurcation of the, of the cloud, et cetera, and getting, making sure we're addressing the absolutely critical issues of things like privacy, while at the same time, not giving up the benefits that come from the openness of the multilateral system. I think about how much harder it would have been to come up with vaccines if there was not the ability to share data across borders, to share information, in order to, if you're gonna have a real surveillance mechanism as Helen laid out for future pandemics, that by definition requires sharing information and data across borders. And we need to make sure that some of the nationalist trends don't make it actually more difficult to achieve these objectives. Mike, one of the um, challenges we were even faced before the pandemic was uh, growing inequalities, not uh, only between countries, but also inside traditional uh, market economic-based uh, uh, societies. And now we've seen inequalities even grown more uh, during uh, the pandemic. The legitimacy of a social market economy is also that wealth is trickling down. And um, I know that this is something that you have uh, also been grappling with at your Center for Growth at MasterCard. And is there a role uh, for private sector uh, in this? How can we address inequalities, but at the same time, we also need uh, to secure economic growth? Is that like squaring a circle or do you have an answer to that? Well, I, I, think, uh, I, I think this is one of the most important questions on everybody's agenda right now. And as we, to use uh, President Biden's term, build back uh, better, we want to make sure we're building back in a more inclusive and sustainable way as well, um, and ensuring that some of the dynamics that have led to great income inequality or that have um, had a disproportionate negative effect on certain parts of our society as pandemics and their economic implications hit, that we're addressing those. 
Yeah, one thing uh, I'll just pick up on again, something Helen said about uh, the digital age. Um, we need to be very attentive to modernizing our social safety net. One thing that COVID underscored is just how important it is for people to be connected to the digital economy, whether you're an individual getting assistance from your government um, or whether you're a small business struggling to survive and move from being a mom and pop brick and mortar store to being an online e-commerce participant, being able to go online, engage in commerce, connect with your customers and your suppliers, and as an individual, being able to get the assistance that you need all, to, all requires digital connectivity. And there's a lot that the private sector can bring to the table uh, in that regard, both in partnership with government and in partnership with other private sector players. And, you know, we've partnered with Unilever to come up with ways of getting credit into the hands of micro merchants in Africa. Uh, we've partnered with USAID and, and the U.S. Uh, uh, Development Finance Corporation to figure out how to get loans into the hands of women small business owners in South Asia. And we partnered with, with Gavi and the Global Alliance to make our technology available to make it easier for them to track who's getting vaccines, where the vaccines are going, who needs to be reminded to come in for another boost. Um, and those are all things that the private sector and public sector can, can do together to make sure that we're addressing these issues of inclusive growth. And I think with um, all the stimulus now, 14 trillion US dollars, the fiscal muscle of money garments will be quite limited. So public-private partnerships are crucial. And thank you for uh, MasterCards and your support also to the Edison Alliance that we initiated at uh, the Digital Davos this year. It's unbelievable that 3.6 billion people are not connected uh, to the internet and to the web. And how can they leapfrog in such a situation? And uh, I know that MasterCard is very very much uh, engaged in this. And can we close this? Is there a way of seeing all these people being connected in the five coming years? Or are we talking about 10 years or 15 years? Well, I think uh, the Edison Alliance is a great opportunity to bring together both governments and private sector players from telecommunications and other fields to really address that digital divide question. What needs to be done to invest in infrastructure? And are there innovative ways of financing that? Um, I think it can be done. There are some good role models going to take the right enabling environment by governments and the right kind of investment uh, by, by the private sector. But I think this is a critical time to look at it coming out of COVID and understanding just how critical the participation in the digital economy is. Thank you, Mike Froman. Adrian, we have two great speakers still with us. I leave the moderation now in your very able hands. Thanks so much, Berger. And uh, India is facing a still a critical moment in this crisis. Apollo Hospitals plays a massive role in delivering healthcare across India. Great to have Shibana Kamenani with us. Shibana, we've seen something like 100,000 cases, I think, this week just being reported across India. We've also seen India overtaking the US in delivering vaccines. Can you give us an idea of just how the situation is in India right now and how the healthcare system is coping? In a phrase, I think it's something like the, the Sisyphus curse. It seems like we're eternally pushing that boulder up the hill and we're not going to get to the top. Because if you looked at it, we thought when the vaccine came, 
India had enough vaccines. We were the vaccine capital of the world. Uh, COVID cases were low. We just, you know, we had managed to avoid a second wave. Today, we've, we've, we're the second highest vaccinated country in the world, 90 million people. But that's only 0.8% of our population. And I think, so you're seeing this microcosm that will play out in the developing world. That yes, people will get the vaccine. Uh, the, the alliances, COVAX, plus, you know, the Indian government and its diplomacy, vaccine diplomacy, the fact that it's available for just two and a half dollars, we'll see that a significant uh, amount of population in India and around us will get the vaccine. But like Secretary Hancock said, this is an endemic situation. We are not going to be in a time where there's not going to be a COVID case. And, and if you see this, what's happened now is that uh, the younger population in India, for instance, are seeing that you can get it and it's just like the flu. You know, you're at home for a while. And so they're unable to understand. Earlier, if, if they were just so frightened, people listened. People, you know, were careful. They masked. But now I, I don't know whether it's fatigue or it's just the fact that they don't believe anymore, that this is, they think this is way of life. So, so the rest of many parts of the world are going to have to deal with this. Our own hospitals, as of today, are full. So it used to be that if you were above 70 and you got, and you got COVID, the chances of recovery were really difficult. Now, most people are just going home. So the mortality rate has fallen. So we're looking at a situation where the community has to deal with this pandemic uh, for the long-term future. We have to understand that this is among us. And the one message I would give is we need to stop putting disproportionate attention while it's important. I do feel the fact that we're ignoring NCDs and polio and cancer and, uh, and TB and other pro uh, programs will probably come and hit world systems back in the face. That's another thing that we've tried so hard for so many years to push up the hill. That lesson that you're drawing there, that we need to pay attention to some of the other health problems that have perhaps played second fiddle during this crisis. What other lessons are you seeing from your experience of tackling COVID in India? The best thing I think is that we've become more agile. Digital health, you spoke about uh, digital inclusion. Now it's actually really growing. Healthcare, digital health has become ubiquitous. Uh, we did, especially starting with telehealth when they didn't have access. And I think over the years, this is going to really be the one that will transform the health systems of countries that will make, you know, it more inclusive. We used to think that, you know, this personalized medicine was the big story. Now we can personalize and make healthcare so much more inclusive. Governments are collaborating, not just state governments, but also world governments. Uh, companies are coming together to to reorganize supply chains. So I think that overall, we've learned many lessons in being more agile and, and believing that there are other methods. But uh, there's also another lesson we learned is that the old systems were not good enough for this world. And we never had an opportunity to change it. And today, the old healthcare systems have seen they don't have a place in this new world. So I think that that's something also that we have to look at, that they're seeing that care is now moving out of hospitals. It can go to homes. Outpatient care can come on your phone. 
And the last I can say is that every company is now a healthcare company. So it's not just the domain of hospitals and healthcare workers. You'll find Google and Amazon and many others will join this. And possibly together, we can, like uh, Helen Clark had said, that we need to build more resilient systems. We need to do it with the public and private. Thanks, Shivana. I mean, you mentioned there that, you know, while the virus hasn't burnt out, perhaps people's ability to cope with it has. And, and you know, Linda Grattan, you study mental health in workplaces. What do we know about how people are at this stage of the pandemic in terms of dealing with it? You know, are people so weary that they're really not prepared to go any further and listen to the messages and take the public health advice? And how can governments and how can uh, healthcare providers kind of make sure that they're still listening and that we're, they're not tuning out those messages? Well, I, th th thank you so much. Um, and I speak also actually as the chair of one of the World Economic Forum councils, which is looking at jobs. And I wanted to come back to Shivana's point about organizations now being places of, of healthy living. I'm sort of seeing three things happening to work right now. Um, one is a big move to hybrid work, you know, flexibility around place and time. Secondly, uh, right across the world, we're seeing a push towards automation during this period people's jobs have been automated and we see that as a continuing trend. And then thirdly, many of the jobs that are going to be built back are zero, uh, zero contract hour jobs. So those three things, the rise of hybrid work, the automation and the uh, and zero hours contract are all creating anxiety really. But I think there are things that could make this a really positive outcome. You know, when we talk about healthy people, most of us work, uh, we're going to be working into our 70s. We need to produce healthy work. And I think within those three areas, we have the opportunity to do that. Let me just very briefly say what I think they are. Firstly, hybrid work is about flexibility. And we know that people are much healthier, mentally healthy and physically healthy, if they have flexibility. Secondly, automation only is a negative if people aren't allowed and enabled to augment their skills. So there's a huge upskilling and reskilling agenda. And of course, the WEF has been very much part of that agenda, but billions of people around the world will now need to be upskilled to do jobs that they've never done before. So we know that if people feel they don't have the job, the skills to do their job, they feel really anxious. So we need, and that's governments, but it's also corporations to show where the new jobs are and to show what sort of skills will be required to do those new jobs. And finally, in terms of uh, zero hour contracts, this is something that my own council at the WEF has been very focused on. Um, it's absolutely crucial. Zero hours contracts cause people a great deal of anxiety because they don't know when their next paycheck is. They don't know what that paycheck is going to be. So we need to build greater uh, resilience around those sorts of roles. And as Mike said earlier, the social safety nets are going to be absolutely crucial because people need predictability. Linda, you mentioned there some of the things that perhaps businesses and employers can do for people who are remaining in work now through the pressures of the pandemic. But we've also seen a massive impact on people who've been laid off, who've fallen out of the workplace and for whom really there's no provision. You know, we've 
we've got a healthcare safety net, but we don't have a mental healthcare safety net for those people. Is that something that you think governments and, uh, and businesses should be looking at for the future, the idea of helping people who, who fall out of these kind of networks of support? Yes, it's absolutely crucial. In my view, I speak as a psychologist, we become healthy when we do healthy work. So getting people into healthy work and healthy jobs as fast as possible is going to be crucial. And particularly young people, you know, the group that have suffered the most during the pandemic are two groups. One is women, they, as you know, are less likely to go back to work and young people. We need, uh, governments need to focus. And, and I'm pleased to say that certainly the UK has really focused on how to help young people get back to work. And that's going to be the best thing I think governments can do to help people's mental health. And just want to draw our session to a close, but perhaps go quickly to Helen and, and maybe Michael and, and Shabana. Helen, as part of the pandemic preparedness that you're looking at, is mental health something that you think should be on the agenda when we come and think about how we prepare and respond for these kind of crises? Because it seems very much as though the, the infrastructural piece, the vaccine, the research piece is something that we've got institutions ready to pursue, but we haven't thought about the real impact that people are feeling and the suffering that this is causing uh, globally. Yes, that, that's right. And I think that, you know, often when you're talking loosely about pandemic preparedness, thinking people are thinking about the sorts of, you know, containment measures and not necessarily the social support measures. So uh, where there hasn't been, for example, universal social protection, there's been tremendous hardship through, uh, through this pandemic. Where there hasn't been resilience in the health system to keep existing services going. Uh, there's been awful fallout. You know, the unplanned pregnancies because contraception wasn't available, the missed out, you know, HIV and other essential drugs. There's long stories in that. But then I think, you know, as every country now hopefully reviews its pandemic preparedness and looks at the issues which arose, this issue of loneliness an impact on, on mental health and well-being is a very significant one. Uh, in New Zealand, we had baseline data which showed that before the pandemic, the proportion of the population that said they experienced loneliness uh, uh, most or all of the time was about 3.5%. It shot up to 10% when this was surveyed during the pandemic. Now, that's a significant proportion of people uh, who, who are having their well-being directly impacted on by what was happening. So. All of these lessons we need to capture as part of the planning uh, for the resilience for next time. And Michael, you know, you're an expert on, on global networks and, and you're you know, your own career has shown the interconnectedness. When you hear testimony like the, that of Shabana about what's going on in, in India, how concerned are you that we still haven't got the kind of organisation, the kind of joined up approach that will make sure that we don't neglect uh, important geographies, important demographies when we come to deal with this crisis? It's absolutely critical. And yes, it's kind of natural for every political system to want to make sure they're taking care of their own people first. To, to, to Matt Hancock's point earlier, we all fully recognize that none of us are truly safe till everybody is safe. And that is the nature of the pandemic. So I think that sort of consciousness is now there and, and the search for ways of working together is going to be very important. The only thing, other thing I'd like to add to what Linda said is, the, first of all, the mental health issues are, are real. And as employers, I think we need to be 
incredibly sensitive to what our teams are going through and create new ways for them to work and to address the concerns that arise. We're all learning a lot more about ourselves and our employees uh, through this process. And you know, being on Zoom calls and Zoom webinars, as nice as they are, 20 hours a day, isn't uh, terribly good for mental health either. So I think uh, finding ways of dealing with uh, with those issues are going to be critically important. And just to add to uh, to her trifecta, I think the, the truth is there's going to be more and more people who are in the gig economy, who have unstructured employment relations, and they need social safety nets too. And that really underscores the need to have uh, sort of a new sense of portable benefits that you can assemble from a variety of different opportunities that you may be taking advantage of and be able to put yourself on a path towards greater financial security, health security, and the like. Thanks for that. Shabana, just final thought from you. Is the, the health, the mental health care aspect of, of your employees, your staff in, in frontline jobs in healthcare provision, is that something that you've found uh, a challenge during this crisis or have you found a way through at Apollo? Uh, for healthcare workers, it's been more about exhaustion. The long-term effects as we study it, there, there's going to be stuff that comes out that many of us don't even know. But, but there's some good stuff also. And I think that what Linda said, that working from home, uh, now we're finding as people want to get back to the office, the kind of saying we liked uh, in between, they said it was lonely, it was terrible when you had to do it. But now given the option, they want the freedom of choice to say, can we do both? And we would never have come to that space till, till this was, was thrust on us and it became a necessity. So I go back to what I say and that uh, there will be things bad and good that come out of this pandemic. But one thing we can say that none of us will be what we were before. Shabana, thank you very much indeed. From Burger Brenda and myself here in Geneva, a big thanks to you, to Professor Linda Grattan, to Michael Froman, to Helen Clark, and to Matt Hancock for joining this panel. Thanks to all of you for joining us online and listening, and wherever you are, have a safe continuation of your day. Thank you.